Our reading this evening can be found in Mark chapter 8 and we start at verse 31 which is on page 1012 in the Bibles in the front of the pews. So Mark chapter 8 starting at verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. This is the word of the Lord. Please do have a seat. And if you'd like to keep that passage open, Mark 8, and it's on page 1012. And I'll pray for us, shall I? Lord, we pray, may we hear you speak to us from this passage this evening. May we open to your, be open to your prompting and not be distracted from your message this evening. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Yeah, okay, uh, um, sort of first of all an introduction to this. And I, uh, I'm really warm to the character of Peter, as maybe some of you are also, uh, because he makes mistakes, doesn't he? He's, um, he's an impetuous person sometimes, often charges in and says things before maybe he's had time to think. But at the same time, he's sort of rather a bold and honest uh, Person is there some, there's an openness to Peter, I find. And maybe you know someone like that. Um, maybe you are someone like that uh, who's a bit impetuous. I don't suppose anybody has admit that, oh, I'm impetuous. I don't suppose we admit that really. But you know the sort of person who says the thing that everybody else is thinking but is either afraid to say so or is too sensible to say so. Well, in the passage we're looking at, it, uh, it is his impetuous. Uh, boldness which results in him getting into uh, or getting it badly wrong but there's a lot more to uh, the passage and the interaction here between Jesus and Peter than Peter simply being too rash and we're going to look at that this evening but first we must look at what happened the minutes before uh, the passage that we had read to us the incident in fact we uh, We'd have to, anyway, look at the passage before, because our passage starts, you may notice that, saying, he then began to teach them. That's implying that something happened before that prompted him to. It says, he then began to teach them, this is verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So what was it that specifically prompted Jesus to uh, say that? Well, first I must paint the picture of what is going on here. Um, So Mark starts in verse 27 with a very nice little human touch, really. Uh, What he says there is that um, this conversation took place uh, on the way. That is, they're walking to these villages near Caesarea Philippi. So it's as they're walking that they're, they're talking together. 
And uh, I find sometimes that when you're walking with someone, you can have actually have a deeper conversation because you're not actually looking directly at each other. You're looking, hopefully, where you're going and what your feet are doing. And so you can actually sort of uh, be uh, rather more open than perhaps you would normally. Um, so they're walking, and uh, that's while this conversation happens. So while they're walking, Jesus asked two very searching questions of these disciples. And this is no casual, oh, by the way, type question. This is a turning point in the disciples' understanding and learning of who Jesus was and what he came to do. Jesus' questions then were very deliberate. He chose this moment to ask them. And their reply, very important, just as it still is today to these questions. So his first question to them, verse 27, who do people say I am? Now this is rather an easier question than the next because it's not so challenging. You can talk at length about what other people say. Well, this person says that and this person says this. And uh, without actually, actually making a commitment about what you uh, think yourself. You can sit yourself very nicely on the fence talking about what other people say. But then Jesus asks his second question, which is, who do you say I am? Verse 29. That is something entirely different, isn't it? You are prompted then to make a decision or a commitment one way or the other. And it is a position you might find you have to then defend. This is such an important question for all people, for all time, to answer. Who do you say Jesus is. So it's at this point that Peter makes his confession. Um, and it was Peter's astonishing reply to that question that prompts Jesus then to speak about his suffering and death. Peter said, verse 29, You are the Christ. That is to say, He's the Messiah, the long awaited Saviour, the chosen one of God, King David's greater son. The one who for centuries the Jewish nation had been waiting for. The one who would alter the course of all history. The fact that Peter would say that will probably not seem astonishing to you now because you know something of the Christian faith and you know what happened next. But it would have seemed astonishing then, probably taken the disciples' breath away, that Peter would have the courage to voice such a belief, though many of them perhaps harboured the same thought. So let's give Peter his due here. He did not have the knowledge that we now have, and, uh, but he has seen in this Jesus, this poor, uh, strangely homeless man, without honour, majesty, wealth or power. Well, not humanly speaking. One who is not accepted by the leaders in the country, treated with contempt by the religious elite, Yet Peter has seen in him, in Jesus, the true prophet who is greater than Moses. That says a lot, doesn't it, about Peter. Matthew 16 records about this incident that Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Now, of course, it says a lot about Jesus also, that Peter saw that in him and gave such a testimony. 
Now we are not called to be impetuous, but we are called to be bold and to show courage, to confess Christ as Lord, as Peter did. But I think that we know, don't we, that that's never going to be popular. Not a popular thing to do. But later on in this chapter, we see that the Lord takes note of those who confess him before men. So then, that's Peter's confession. And Jesus then begins teaching them. It's this identification of Jesus with the Messiah which prompts him to start doing that in verse 31. So he tells them that he's going to be rejected. He will suffer. He will die and rise again. And so the next thing that happens is that Peter challenges Jesus about it. What a contrast then to the one thing and the other, to what happens now, verse 31 to 32. So I'll read that bit again. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I can imagine him walking along, sort of gently directing Jesus away from the others to, to take him to task about it. But then in return, the disciples, uh, sorry, uh, <clears throat> then in return, in the disciples' hearing, then Peter gets a very serious rebuke from Jesus, verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. From here, hero to villain in a few minutes, a few moments. It brought me to mind of a classroom scene, for me, in the distant past, not for many of you, I suppose, where a teacher, say, puts an equation up on the blackboard. It was a blackboard in my day. And puts an equation up and then turns to the class and says, what's the answer to that? And so everybody in the class is trying to make themselves invisible. You know, they're not going to put their hand up here, they're not going to catch the teacher's eye. Don't pick me, they're saying. But then one brave soul sticks his hand up and gives an answer. And to everyone's astonishment, probably, most probably, uh, especially him, he actually gets the answer right. So now, filled with confidence and self-assurance, he then jumps at the next question and gets it catastrophically wrong. Bringing into question whether he actually understood the first question uh, anyway. So is this story a little bit like that of Peter? He gets it right and then actually gets it wrong. In a way it is, I guess, but only Peter got the first question right, didn't he? He knew who Jesus was, but he just didn't understand what that meant. But it's worth asking yourselves two questions. Maybe you have already. Was Peter so bad in getting this wrong and trying to speak to Jesus about it? And why does Jesus rebuke him so harshly? Well, we need to understand that in the mind of the disciples, to hear Jesus, who's just accepted the confession that Peter has made of him, 
to, uh, to hear then him say that he must be rejected, suffer and die is a massive contradiction to them. To say it is shocking is a huge understatement. It is incomprehensible. Now, if someone that you cared about were to say the sort of things that Jesus said about what's going to happen to him, you would be shocked, wouldn't you? And they have been brought up to believe that the Messiah is going to free the Jewish people by force from their oppressors with supernatural power. And they've seen that Jesus has supernatural power. The Messiah, they thought, was going to be a very nationalistic military leader, the hero like no other. And the disciples were very much aware that the rest of the Jews around them thought on the same lines. So Jesus then must be wrong, surely, they think. And Jesus is not only saying that it's going to happen, what he says twice is that it must happen. I doubt the disciples will have noticed at the bit about rising three days later. They will have been so completely floored by the first part of it. So Peter's reaction is, in one sense, understandable, albeit that given that he's just confessed in verse 29 that Jesus is the Messiah, you'd have thought he might have held back a little. But then holding back wasn't Peter's strong point, was it? So then, this gives us uh, something of a picture of what Jesus' task is um, when he says he began to teach them. Um, well, he must begin to teach them from the scripture what really the Messiah has come to do. And there's two things in the text which show us how Jesus is going to approach that. And they seem in many ways, these two things, uh, counterintuitive. That is the opposite to what you might think. So the first is, in verse 30, that Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about this, the fact that they've tweaked the Christ, the Messiah. Because you would have thought that the opposite was the case. Go out and tell everybody that the Messiah has come. But having understood what they thought the Messiah was going to do, then we begin to see why a popular following would actually quickly derail what Jesus' mission truly was. So the second thing, verse 31, did you notice that Jesus acknowledges Peter's confession that he is the Christ, but immediately then uses a different term for himself not Christ or Messiah, he says that he's the son of man, the son of man must suffer much. So given the circumstances, this is a far less inflammatory term, deliberately a little ambiguous, because the son of man can mean just anybody, a person. Except that in Daniel 7, that expression is used prophetically for one with authority, glory and power. So Jesus gives himself here some room to explain what he truly has come to do. Time to teach God's far greater purpose in sending his son into the world. So now let's deal with what Jesus then says to Peter, this rebuke. Now, we uh, would understand that Jesus would know Peter much better than we ever do, and will uh, know all that we've just been thinking about. So why does he rebuke him in such strong terms? Get behind me, Satan. That is arguably the sharpest rebuke 
to ever pass Jesus' lips. Well, let us consider this. Would Peter and the rest of the disciples have prevented Jesus from going to the cross if they could? Maybe that's why Jesus stops and makes sure the rest of the disciples hear the response. They would have been just as guilty had they actually spoken. If he had been so prevented from taking this course, then there would be no atonement, there'd be no satisfaction of God's law, no reconciliation with the Father. We and they would still be dead in our sins, without God and without hope, as Paul puts it. So this is a central truth, isn't it? The central truth of the Bible, after which everything else is secondary. And it is that Jesus the Christ gave himself up to death and was raised again in order to save sinners. Jesus could not let Peter's resistance to that pass. Secondly, and you may have noticed that the phrase Jesus uses is like the words he used when tempted by Satan in the wilderness, recorded in Matthew chapter 4. Get behind me, Satan. The temptation is not to follow the path of suffering, the path of obedience to his father. Just as in the Garden of Gethsemane, Satan uses Jesus' very human aversion to suffering and death to tempt him. Peter is putting into words here the very temptation that Jesus himself faces. And Jesus sees the source of that temptation. Now I don't doubt that um, Peter meant well. He thought he was saying this, at least in part, out of love for Jesus. But it's a sobering truth, isn't it? That people can mean well, but get it very badly wrong. So as I conclude, here is a couple of thoughts to apply it to our lives. As one commentator said, it is but a little step from a good confession to being one who stands in the way of Jesus' truth. We should hold to our faith with humility, never thinking that we know everything and that we are not likely ever to slip into error. J.C. Ryle said, here is proof that the best of saints is a poor, fallible creature. We need to pray, surely, every day that we be kept by our Lord, that we be taught by him, and we be kept from error. The second thing to note is that we should also remember, bear in mind, that we too can be tempted away from what we know to be God's calling by those who mean well, even perhaps those who love us. But in saying those two things, we can also remember this, that Jesus did take the path of suffering and death for our sakes and was raised. We do have a great saviour. And Peter went on to say, uh, sorry, Peter went on to be what Jesus promised that he would be. 
in Matthew 16, so on this very occasion he says, I tell you that you are Peter, whose name I think you probably know means the rock. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we give you thanks for Peter and his confession. But most of all, we give you thanks that the Lord Jesus took the path of suffering for our sakes, was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. May his name be ever praised. Amen.